fantastic adventure to the frontiers of the unknown. Mission Stardust. Lang Jeffries, commander of the ship that dared to invade a forbidden world. Look over there. Tell me I'm dreaming. But who built a thing that size? We haven't even got a motor that could make that monstrosity fly. But that craft wasn't built on Earth, Mike. Meet man-like creatures with super intelligence, armed with an incredible arsenal of weapons. <laughs> As a person, the seductress of Aya Woman, and the beautiful and bewitching visitor from a planet far beyond the galaxy. Activated energy? It's a gravitational neutralizer. Any material at which it's beamed loses its weight. Taurus, stop playing with human lives and bring them down. You dare to order me around, Major? Everybody, welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and today my returning guest is uh, my friend from across the oceans, Adrian Smith. Adrian, how are you doing, my friend? Hi. Yes, I am pretty good, considering the world is ending around us. Um, in fact, I think the last time we spoke back in November, we did make some jokes about the world was coming to an end. <laughs> Oh my, but I oh, think, timely. Well, yeah, we were thinking more because of the political situation the world was in. Little did we know uh, that we were actually entering the uh, killer virus genre, <laughs> which is where we've ended up. But yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm in my house all day. All my family are here. So I don't get to watch movies that often that anyone else, you know, wouldn't want to watch. Which is most most of my oh. most of my collection of films that no one else would want to watch. Um, <laughs> so um, I know that I know that feeling yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So unlike some people in lockdown who are getting to catch up on all their movie piles, um, my I need to have a lockdown when my kids have already left home. So if if we could do this all again <laughs> in about five years, then um, it might work a little bit more in my favour. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as it is, we got Disney Plus just at the right time, so uh, we've been catching up on Disney movies. So it's been pretty fun. Oh, there's a lot of good Disney stuff out there. I I tend toward the uh, as much as I love the classic animated stuff from you know decades gone by. There's uh, a lot of joy in poking around in the uh, the weirder stuff as well. Oh yeah, stuff like uh, Return to Oz or. Uh, uh, the Black Cauldrons, the, the weird stuff from the 80s, essentially. Yeah, no, strangely, um, the the Watcher in the Woods isn't on Disney+, Plus, but they have got Escape from Witch Mountain and uh, some of those weird live-action 60s ones. But I was quite disappointed to find The Watcher in the Woods wasn't on there. That's a weird film with a completely weird ending. <laughs> Yeah, but we, yeah, we probably should talk about that because if people are curious about that movie, the ending 
is so out of left field. I think it's best best to best left to the viewer to discover. Save that. Save um, that for another podcast. Exactly. That's just about what I was going to say. Um, okay, today uh, you you surprised me a little bit. Of course, uh, those of you who are unaware, uh, Adrian is the uh, writer of the Antonio Margariti blog, also known as Blogariti. And a few months ago, he popped up with uh, an entry on Mission Stardust, also known as 4321-DEATH. Uh, it's a 1967 science fiction film, and until you wrote about it, I had forgotten that there was an Antonio Margariti connection to this movie at all. Yeah, well, you see, I, I'm continually trying to muscle in on your um, <laughs> Antonio Margariti podcast, and uh, but obviously the ones that he actually directed, you should really say for uh, for you guys. So if I can find a film with a Margariti connection, then I will. Uh, try and throw my hat into the ring well i will admit that at some point someday i actually do want to uh coerce you into uh doing a, a show devoted to uh, treasure island and outer space oh yeah that's really good but i haven't still haven't finished it i started blogging each episode i think i only got about three episodes in and then i got distracted i haven't finished watching it myself yeah. <laughs> i think there are 10 episodes altogether so i need to get back on with that one but it is really good actually and um very good special effects and it's got a great cast. I mean, Ernest Borgnine yeah, is in yeah. there, uh, amongst other people. It's a really good show. Well, tell me something. It uh, deserves to be better known. With Mission Stardust, um, did you had you, when did you finally see this movie? Did it was it only a recent viewing, or is it something that you'd seen in the past as well? Um, no, I picked this up on a grey market DVD uh, with a guy that was selling these at a, some film festival or something, and I bought it primarily because of the cover because it looked fun and um i think i was buying like three for 10 pounds or something like that and it wasn't until i looked at it later maybe even a year later that i realized that it was uh, a margaret there was a margaret connection that he did the special effects so i watched it for the first time when i wrote my blog uh entry on it which was uh, about three two three years oh, ago wow. so yeah, so it was the, that was the first time I saw it was when I watched uh, watched it for this. Well, the uh, the surprise to me was um, okay. Well, here's my history with the film because it's a little it's a little odd. I've known about I, I know, I've known that Mission Stardust was an adaptation of some of the early novels in the uh, German science fiction series Perry Roden, and I I'd known that for a long time. And about oh man, I want to say twenty years ago, back when I was still buying these things on bootleg VHS tapes. I picked up a copy of Mission Stardust from some bootlegger somewhere for, you know, much much the same way you're talking about, only mine was VHS instead of DVD. I watched it back then, and I was completely unimpressed. Uh, it did not do anything for me, uh, and I was it, it was it was relegated to a one-and-done kind of viewing experience. And so when uh, I read, I had not given it much thought about... Uh, you know, as as something to rewatch until I read your piece uh, for a second time on the film on the, on Blogariti, and at that point I realized, okay, wait a minute, he's he's actually saying a lot of good things about this movie, and it's been you know it's been two decades. Maybe I ought to revisit this thing and see what it says to me, <laughs> because that's that's a reoccurring theme in my life. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that movies that I like when I was younger. 
usually I like them when I as I get older as well, but maybe sometimes for different reasons, or maybe I won't like them quite as much, but I still yeah. have at least a nostalgic feel for them. And sometimes some movies that I you know thought were blah or mediocre or not particularly great, sometimes a revisit some years on shows them to me in a brand new light, and I, I actually end up enjoying them a lot more. And I gotta say, without uh, spoiling anything here, my viewing of it this time, which is probably only my second viewing, I really liked this movie. I don't know what was wrong with me the last time. Oh, I have no idea what was what was. <laughs> I don't know, but this time, uh, I have a suspicion though. Part of it mm-hmm. is I think, and you you allude to this uh, in your blog post about it. I think part of it may have been that I went in expecting some kind of you know full blown science fiction movie, something like as you were saying the the Gamma One films that Margariti made himself, and yeah, you know, that's not what you get. This is much more of a you know most of this story takes place not on the moon or in orbit, but down on the ground as we attempt to you know find a cure for an alien, and that is that's probably what my disappointment with it originally was. Yeah, it's like they only had the budget to make half a sci-fi film, um, but they did have money to go to Spain <laughs> or wherever they wherever they are shooting it. I think it was in Spain. Yeah, the Canary um, Islands so for some of it. Came up, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. So they came up with a plot that would allow them to shoot half of it in space and half of it, <laughs> um, yeah, in the Canary Islands. I mean, it was probably a funding thing. Like, you know, was a, it was a Spanish-German-Italian co-production. And so, um, yeah, that would have come with certain obligations as to where they were filming. So that, that that's probably why it ended up like that. But like you said, it's sort of initially it can be disappointing. But then, if you look at it as a Euro spy film, it's basically a Euro spy film that's got stuff in with that's got spaceships. So yeah. it's quite fun from that point of view. I agree, and I have to say that before I sat down to to watch this film for this you know second time in my life, first I tried to seek out the novels that they're that it, that they're based on. I thought you know I know that there are for those of you who don't know. Uh, the Perry Roden series is a very popular series of German novels that started in 1961 and continue to this day. There are over, uh, what is that, I think 3,000 of them? The uh, Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely nuts. I think the anniversary volume number 3,000 was published in February of last year. So <laughs> this thing has been going as a weekly novella produced... Uh, you know, the same way, you know, you would assume pulp magazines were published back in, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40s here in the States. Uh, But this has been going on since 1961 with, of course, a a bunch of different authors collaborating. And I knew that uh, in the 70s, there was a an attempt to get them uh, over here to the states, and they published in English translations over here about the first 139 of them, which is, is, is of course, it's a, that's a drop in the bucket. But at the same time, 139 novellas, regardless of how you know short they may be, that's still a lot. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to yeah. go back and I'm going to rewatch this film, let me check out at least some examples of the source material. So I picked up through means that we will not discuss in detail, <laughs> I picked up ebook versions of those 139, and I stuck them on my Kindle, and I started reading them. 
So I read the wow. I, uh, I read the first two, and I got to tell you, the first two are exactly where they got the story for this film for Mission Stardust. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the it, and it was fascinating to to have read those first two stories and them to be this well the start of this long continuing storyline, and uh, I found it fascinating to then watch the movie and be able to be able to say to my beloved sitting on the couch next to me, okay, that that wasn't in the story, and and that wasn't in the story. Oh, they're okay. They're changing this, and to have her eventually just go, "Will you please shut up?" And so <laughs> we. we which which is better than feeling like you can't watch it at all when you're stuck in you know mm. COVID hell, but the uh, the fun part of it is that every piece of the of this film that is Euro Spy is not in the book. Uh, all the oh. yeah, so that like your 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 bad guy who instead of sitting and stroking a cat like uh, like Blofeld from the Bond films is sitting and stroking it a pet dog, yeah, that, that all of that criminal aspect of things. That has absolutely nothing to do with the books. As a matter of fact, in the books, the the Stardust mission, the uh, Perry Roden and his three other astronauts. Uh, by the way, they're American astronauts. I love the fact that uh, this this is a German story. Uh, these these are German science fiction stories, but they're uh, being re- realistic enough to have these be American astronauts that these are, you know, they're taking off from the United States. They're just basically being, they're basically just part of a, a, a futuristic slash 1970s version of NASA. And so they're just going to the moon to go to the moon as if this were the first trip to the moon. And, uh, oh, I see. and in the movie, they're going to the moon in a secret quest to find a radioactive source material, more powerful than uranium. And, uh, that was the first time I think I nodded to my my poor couch friend and and said to her that that's that's not in the book, and so I got away with that one pretty easily. But from there on, it got more difficult. The changes that are made to turn this into a film are to turn it into a Eurospy film. So your 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 feeling earlier as you stated that the this was essentially kind of a merger of science fiction and 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 uh, Eurospy. Yeah, they, they seem to have decided. We really, really want to make a, a Eurospy film, or at least we have the budget for a Eurospy film. But these things are really popular and have been really popular at this point for six years. There's got to be a way to like turn this into something slightly Eurospy. And so what you get is this weird combination of the first two Perry Roden novels and a Eurospy movie. Yeah, I mean, that sort of makes sense. If they, these films were all put together, like I said, with sort of co-production deals and each partner would bring with them a certain set of requirements if they wanted the money. And so you've got a German, the German input is from the sort of script and the story uh, and some of the cast. And then the Italian side of it was mostly the studio work, I think. And then, yeah, for Spain, you've got the locations. I also, I just noticed that also Monaco are listed as one of the co-producing countries. So it's possible that some of it was shot in Monaco as well. Monaco? Um, Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I thought it was interesting. I didn't know much about Lang Jeffries, but it turns out he's he's from Canada. Yeah, I know him from having popped up in a few uh, Eurospy films and a couple of uh, you know like Revolt of the Slaves and a few other Peplum films in the '60s as well. 
But really, that's all I really knew it for. Requiem for a Gringo, you know, you, you, you know, if you're from North America and you go to Europe, of course you're going to be in a Sp- you're going to be in a Spanish Western. I'm sorry, an Italian Western. I don't really, I didn't really know him from much other than this yeah. film. No, I mean I either. But it is. I, I wrote a list on the blog of, um, well, it's just an overview of the cast, and you've got him who's Canadian, you've got an Argentinian, uh, Essie Person is Swedish, uh, you've got a Spanish actor in there, German. Uh, Italian, and also um, John Carlson is from New Zealand. So it's a, it was the, the languages being spoken on set would have been very confusing. <laughs> uh, yeah, agreed. John Carlson is interesting. I, I'd seen him in a few things. Uh, uh, and he's got a, he's got a face that you really. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that he's an unattractive man. I'm just saying that once you see that face, it's really difficult to forget. And uh, you know this this is this is the first film I think I've done that has a direct link to Bill and Ted's uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and it's through him. Oh, I'd so forgotten he was in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's always. <laughs> well, he was I mean, in a lot of things. I just uh, he died two years ago at the age of ninety-seven. Oh wow, really? Yeah. That recently? So in those in the, those films of the sixties where he looked like an old man, he was still only halfway through his life. <laughs> That's that's crazy because I remember him from Cracking the World and she, uh, Beast, she yeah. Beast and even Modesty Blaze. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. <laughs> He's just obviously one of those guys who always looked elderly. Uh, I I wonder if it's uh, we, we well there used to be a lot of actors like that and I always wonder if it's just because everybody smoked yeah. back then. I mean he must because he must have only been in his forties, late forties, something like that. Oh yeah, that's yeah that's <laughs> true. That's crazy though. Well, at any rate, I mean, he was even in uh, the 1979 version of The Black Stallion. I mean, he was in a lot of mm. stuff. And uh, like I say, once you see that kind of... I mean, he's almost usually bald or with very little hair, so he kind of stands out. But uh, oh, you brought up Essie... Uh, is it yeah, Essie Pearson? Is that how to pronounce her name? Pearson, right? I suppose. I don't know. Pearson. Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm unfamiliar with her other work as well, but I, you know, I'm willing to learn. Yeah, well... She's mostly famous for being in I, a Woman, um, which is a classic Swedish um, sex film, basically. It was quite explicit for uh-huh. its day. And then she went on to be in a couple of others, like Therese and Isabel, which was directed by, uh, what's his face, Radley Metzger. Um, well, I know her from uh, Cry of the Banshee, the Vincent oh, yeah, Price film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. But, yeah, um, but that I, was wo- literally the only other thing. I, a woman, I have seen, I wrote about that a little bit a couple of years ago. That's a really interesting film. It's quite explicit for its time. Um, so that sort of made her this star of, uh, you'd think she would have gone on actually to a bigger career, but she didn't really work very much. She made a few more films, but she basically stopped acting in the early 70s, um, which is kind of a shame. It is kind of a shame. Apparently, mm. she's still alive. I mean, she was born in '41, so she's getting up there. My goodness. Yeah, but yeah, I a Woman is a really interesting movie, and it was never actually. Um, it was kind of banned in this country, and it's still never actually had an official release <laughs> in the UK. Really? Yeah, it's never been commercially available in the UK. But um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So for her to end up in uh, in Italian Euro sci-fi film is uh, intriguing. I would love to know how she ended up in that, and indeed how she ended up in the Vincent Price film, uh, because mostly yeah. she just stayed in Sweden, so I don't really know. But it, yeah, it's interesting casting. She is also not blonde in real life. <laughs> That's worth mentioning. 
Well, she looks, I mean, that's weird considering her nationality. I mean, there's just an association with blonde hair from, mm. you know, from that whole region. Yeah, she, so that's she's odd. got dark hair. But if you look on the IMDb, there is a photo of her in a bikini uh, with dark hair holding a gun. And it's, it's, a German, it's a German lobby card for this film, which, of course, mm-hmm. I think is taken from a different film or just the photographer was mucking about behind the scenes <laughs> because she doesn't wear a bikini in the film and she's also got a wig on in the film. So that's an unusual picture to uh, associate with the promotion for this film. But yeah, she's, uh, she's great. She's a woman. It's definitely worth seeking out if you're interested in that sort of thing. I, I, th- those kind of things don't interest me. Don't interest me. I'll, uh, I'll look at, I'll look into it later. <laughs> but, uh, I have to say, I I was I've already told you I was shocked and surprised by my revisit to this film about how much I really enjoyed it, mm. and uh, I, part of the fun is definitely for me at least comparing it to the not you know the first two novellas that I've read now, but another part of it is that it actually is a pretty f- well paced movie. It, it 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 goes along at a good clip. It uh, doesn't have any stretches where you feel like you you know you might want to step away from it. It keeps your attention very effectively, and I'm really happy to have gone back to revisit this. I, I kind of want to use your uh, synopsis here on the blog okay. to to kind of take a little walk through the film, and we could use this to as kind of a jumping off point. Are you good with that? Yeah, sure. into the infinite with all its mysteries and unknown dangers. The limitless range of deep space where a billion worlds move in timeless orbits. A fantastic tale of tomorrow told today. The cinematic adventure of a lifetime. Okay. Astronauts Major Perry Roden, played by Lang Jeffries, Mike Bull, and by the way, that's a slightly different, that's a, that's a bit of a name change from the novel. Okay. Flipper, Flipper, who's played by Daniel Martin, Daniel Martin, and that's a name change as well. And Dr. Manoli, uh, who's played, is that our German actor? Yeah. Yeah, Joachim, Joachim Hansen, whichever Kim. They, yeah. They are headed to the moon aboard the highly secretive Stardust. So secret that a press conference is held prior to liftoff, but some information seems to have been withheld, merely fueling the curiosity of those in attendance. Takeoff goes smoothly, and soon our intrepid heroes are flying throughout our space in their model rocket ship. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, meanwhile, back on Earth, evil dog-stroking megalomaniac Arkin is plotting next to the pool of his luxury hideout. Thanks to an inside man, Arkin discovers that the real reason for Stardust's trip is to explore the possibility that below the dusty surface of the moon lies small deposits of an almost pure metal which has an atomic density much greater than either cobalt or lithium. This metal is incredibly valuable, unquote. Now, like I say, this is, to, to just jump in here, I gotta say, this is of course where we start getting the Eurospy stuff. Yeah. If you start, if you've got a Eurospy villain, the villain have to, has to be after something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has to be out after something from the start. And the way the original novel went, which was 
they were just going to the moon. It was an, an, a normal, you know, exploration uh, pr- part of the, the exploration of uh, the solar system process, same way we went to the moon in reality. And they get there, and that's when they make the same discovery that these astronauts make when they get to the moon here. But it's almost as if we had to have something driving us there in the first place. I, I can't figure out if that's a that's a comment on uh, the corporate end of the push for space exploration, or if that's just the Eurospy necessities of storytelling. Yeah, and it also ties in with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the MacGuffins in Eurospy films are somehow connected to radioactive material of some kind. And so uh, they probably wanted to flag that up straight away, even though they actually they don't really talk about it much ever yeah. again. Like it doesn't become an important thing in the film, but it it kind of introduces that radioactive uh, element to the plot. And I suppose it also moves things along a bit quicker because otherwise we might have had to have scenes where they're digging around on the moon and discovering stuff and it would have just taken more time this way. They can just set out straight away what they're doing. Just Yeah, essentially just get right to it. You're probably right. Okay, so when attempting a landing on the moon, something goes wrong with both their controls and their communications, cutting off all contact with mission control. Somehow a safe landing is made and the moon rover vehicle is lowered to the surface. All all of this, all these special effects on the moon, I love all of this stuff. If if we're going to talk Margarita, man, these these miniature effects, all this miniature effects work, especially in this section on on the lunar surface. This is some neat stuff. Hmm. Yeah, it's really well done. Well, they decide to split up with Mike and Perry heading over to the Earth side of the moon so they can try to reestablish contact with uh, Mission Control, whilst the Doctor and Flipper remain in the rocket. Uh, every time I say Flipper, I swear I'm picturing a dolphin. <laughs> I know, it's a weird name to give a character in a script when the TV show Flipper would have been quite popular at that time. I and mean, this is the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. People would have known about Flipper. <laughs> yeah, much, much more so than really now, weird. that's true. Yeah. Well, once Perry and Mike are in place, they extend the aerial, only within seconds it glows red hot and the circuits short out, as does the vehicle controls. Now, that whole thing with the, with the, uh, the communications device, uh, as, as soon as they start to use it, become glowing red hot and burning out, that is straight from the novel as well. In the novel, oh. they have problems. There's some kind of bizarre interference that starts uh, with when they try to land on the moon. This is something that I thought was fascinating, reading the uh, these uh, original novellas. In them, it was posited, as it, as it was early on in the early 60s, that any kind of lunar landing, because of the stresses that would be placed on the uh, human beings that would be in in whatever ship landed on the surface that you couldn't really trust the forces within the capsule to allow human beings to actually operate the controls so the idea was that the ship would have to be remotely controlled from earth to make sure that everything went properly and that is of course what is used in that novella setting everything in place so they're writing down and then something interferes with the communications with back on earth of course later on we find out what it is and that's what causes the crash. So where they end up on the moon is not where they expected to end up on the moon. And to properly communicate with Earth, they need line of sight. But where they land, the Earth is beneath the horizon. So they that's the reason they traipse their way across the lunar surface to attempt to set up some kind of communications again. And just you know, just like in the novel, he, and in the film, the film does it the same way. They just 
they kick it on, and as soon as they do, they get like one little message out, and it glows red hot and short circuits out. So it's really interesting, like I say, to see what they keep. They, they, they keep a lot of the really interesting and intriguing and mysterious stuff that keeps the story keep, you know, moving forward in a, in a kind of questing way. But at the same time, you know, they keep bending it in the direction they want it to go in eventually. I will say the robots, well, when we get to the robots, the robots are not in the novel. So <laughs> there are no robots. Oh, okay. That's, that's definitely something where they, I, I assume that somewhere someone said, uh, you know, it's a science fiction movie, we've got to have robots. So <laughs> I think they had some sci-fi spacesuits left over from previous films. <laughs> and um, they figured, hey, we could just knock some robots together out of this stuff. You know, you may be right. I don't know. But yeah, the, ro- the robots are very funny. Yeah, it's really weird. Well, they step out of the vehicle, and uh, once they step out of their little Land Rover vehicle, it disappears before their eyes. By the way, that's not in the novel either. They do not seem too overwhelmed by this increasing weirdness, perhaps being seasoned astronauts accustomed to outer space oddities. I like the way you put that, by the way. Thank you. Suddenly, in an adjacent crater, they spot an unusually large spherical spacecraft and go to check it out. Following an altercation with a robot who shoots lasers from his eyes, or through his from his eye through the glass of his helmet, you make note of, they are taken up via an elevator tube to the interior of the spacecraft, where they meet the sickly-looking crest, played by John Carlson. Oh, and they also meet the mesmerizing blonde Captain Thora, played by Essa Pearson. You could probably tell from this blog post that I really like. <laughs> I would never have I, uh, that, but yeah. <laughs> I, I talk about her in glowing terms all the way through. Um, yeah, I just thought that the laser effect, it looks like they just scratched it straight into the film. It's a really oh, yeah. basic uh, white line that just appears, and it looks like they just literally scratched it into the negative. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very much an old-style, extremely cheap way to get an effect like that on screen. Yeah. yeah. I just thought it made no sense. If he's shooting those out of his eyes, but he's got a visor on his helmet, <laughs> wouldn't it just make a big hole in his uh, helmet? Well, not, not unless it was a specially made visor, man. Come on. That's true. Maybe the visor amplifies the uh, optical. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you made a valiant effort there. <laughs> you should really... try, man. Yeah, I gave up. You shouldn't think about the science of this stuff. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Well, Crest soon reveals the nature of their mission from the far side of the galaxy to find another compatible species and join together to create new generations for their home planet. Uh, by the way, that is not from the novel. Yeah, definitely oh, okay. not from the novel. They uh, accidentally crashed on our moon because of some kind of mishap on their way to where they were going. And so they're on our they're on our moon simply by chance. And as a matter of fact, the uh, rather arrogant attitude that Thora displays toward uh, Earthmen and, and definitely the crew of this, the crew of these people that she's dealing with, uh, that is very strong in the novel. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the novels, she never leaves the moon. Any help that they're getting from her, she's she's doing from the main spacecraft after they've gone back now to Earth. Uh, 
The long, lingering, lustful looks that Lang Jeffries Perry wrote gives her are still in evidence in the novel, but uh, he definitely, you know, in the well, movie she travels down with them, and so it's a very different. It's a very different beast about how things play out. But uh, in the novels, she, uh, at least in the first two, she's still up on the moon, uh, helping them with, you know, suit, you know, in very advanced technology whenever they need some specific thing done. But the whole idea of Crest being uh, sick and uh, that's kind of backed up in the novel because uh, in the film you only have Crest and Thora but there were a couple of other uh, people, a couple of other of their species on the ship and they were there to kind of play as a very a very straightforward example of the deterioration of this alien race over time because they are absolutely non-participants in the story because they essentially just lay on these uh, couches and stare at screens, kind of watching, you know, essentially pretty pictures. Like, there are several descriptions of them in there. Essentially, the, these people just exist to stare at screens and kind of take pleasure in staring at things. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. Wow. But I can't imagine that at all. That doesn't sound like anything that we I know. I know. I kind of, while reading that, I just, I kept thinking to myself, I was like, but wait, that's kind of like what I want to do. I don't know. Oh. And, and it shows my deterioration as a human being as well, I guess. Crap. But the... Uh, it's like the uh, like the really fat people in Wally. Yeah, yeah. It really feels oh, like something. Not, not that that's not a uh, kind of a standard science fiction trope, but at the same time, yeah. uh, you know, reading it in this novella and seeing it definitely not being put into this film... Uh, well, you know, for a couple of reasons, I'm sure. I mean, they decided to substitute, you know, the big killer, the, the big killer eyeball shooting robot for, you know, some other people hanging around. But at the same time, it's just uh, interesting what they choose to excise and what what comments they they aren't interested in making or that maybe don't even factor into what they're thinking about when they're putting this film together. Well, uh, as we said, okay, so Crest, besides the general deterioration of the of the uh, species that has already been alluded to, Crest is actually very sick, and it eventually comes out that, at least in the novel, it eventually comes out that one of the reasons that they were traveling in the first place is they were seeking a place where they were hoping to find a way to help, medically help Crest because of this illness that he has. They seem. They also seem to have, when they're in their crash, these aliens have damaged uh, certain aspects of their spacecraft, which means that they're kind of stuck there themselves. So, uh, what you write is, uh, will the fortuitous arrival of Perry Roden and his crew be the answer to their problems? Well, in the novel, I'll point mm. out that, uh, fascinatingly enough, they, the Perry Roden strikes a deal with, uh, Crest and Thora, and Thora is, just like in this film, she's the one really in control of this whole spacecraft. He strikes a deal that, you know, they can... They get the, they get their doctor over and have uh, Crest examined, and learn that he is what he has is essentially leukemia, and this of course being the future, uh, there is a, a way to cure leukemia in this you know far off land of the nineteen seventies, seen from the vantage point of you know the nineteen sixties, and so uh, it is possible it's going to be yeah. possible for us to cure Crest, but in the novels. Perry Roden strikes a deal where he's like, look, we can, we want to become part of what your, you know, what this uh, coalition of 
various alien races is you know, we we want to become a part of it. And Thora really does not see this as a possibility until Crest realizes that during their during their conversations with these earthling with these earthlings, the astronauts, he realizes that the, that Earth's human beings have been miscategorized at one level when actually they're at another level, and so that makes it possible for them to interact with each other. And actually, hopefully, the human race can slowly start working their way up this cosmic scale and become, you know, something that the other advanced races of aliens will actually accept. And uh, like I say, these are all these, this is, this, there's all these interesting ideas that apparently continue to play out decades later in those Perry Roden novels that this movie has no interest in whatsoever. Because in the movie, all we're, ta- all we're dealing with here in Mission Stardust is just the idea of, hey, we'll cure this guy's leukemia. And we'll get some nice, cool gadgets from you guys, right? mentioned that um they've put the they've put the human race on a scale i think yeah she says that he's a level four is that about does that what she said in the film yeah if memory serves yes and um he is quite put out by this uh perry Roden, and he makes a joke about how he might be able to go down to a level three uh because he's <laughs> he's he wants to get quite primitive with her 
but uh, because she is superior, she doesn't have any problem with taking all her clothes off in front of him, uh, because that's the kind of thing that higher level people do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess I, this was something uh, about higher level people I was unaware of until this film. Mm. Yeah, and uh, there's a great scene um, where so she's talking to him in her bedroom. I don't know if you want to talk about that in a bit more detail. Oh but... yes, we can we can talk about that. Please go ahead. <laughs> so she's got this amazing '60s futurist bedroom with a big round bed, uh, and it's kind of a combination of Barbarella and Danger Diabolic, uh, all yeah. in one room. And she goes is where she goes to step behind this screen that comes up in front of her while she's taking her clothes off, but it's backlit, so you get this amazing silhouette of her taking her spacesuit off, and then she just puts another spacesuit on. Uh, that's the, the uh, I don't know why she's just changing it, but it leaves her head showing, <laughs> so she can carry on talking to him while stripping off in a silhouette. And I think that's the point where he starts to feel a bit more level three than level four. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say that I think maybe the reason she was changing is the outfit she's wearing when they first arrive. It's this all black skin tight suit, except for what looks to be like squirted icing on both breasts. I can't figure yeah. out what's going on with that outfit. Uh, just round gray circles over her boobs. I, I yeah I so don't then she, she changes it. into a different spacesuit after that, and then she just keeps the same one on for the rest of the film. Yeah, very strange. Uh, well, I, you know, but, any 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 chance to have the silhouette of a naked woman changing clothes, of course, is something you're going to get into your Euro spy film of you know, yeah. whenever you can. So, but yeah, the, but the design this this is all where they were. This was all the Italian stuff. This these uh, sets. The set design of her, well, the spaceship in general, but especially her bedroom, is just great. Um, it's very late 60s pop art. But there's one, did you notice when the camera, there's one point where they're having a conversation, and in the foreground is a very odd-looking object on a pedestal. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't notice it until, I don't think I would have noticed it when watching rewatching the film, except that you pointed out, and then I couldn't do anything but stare at it. <laughs> What is it? Uh, well, you you uh, tell the good people out there what you described it as. <laughs> well, basically, it looks like a big metal dildo on, <laughs> on, a, on a stand. Yeah, on a pedestal, yeah. just right there in the foreground of the shot, whilst uh, whilst Perry and Thora are having a conversation about serious stuff in the background. <laughs> And I don't and know what else it be, is. Like, yeah, I mean, wait, yeah, exactly. I mean, is it? I, I, I thought maybe it was like one of those. In the '60s, there was this. I don't know why, but it's in the '60s there was this ongoing thing where the idea was to design phones that looked like other things. You know, like like a banana or, you know, all, all these different bizarre things. Or, you know, this is when you started getting uh, phones that, you know, were like little little statues that had their hand out. And, you you know, you, the, the hand was actually holding the uh, the uh, the phone itself. You'd pick the, the arm of the, the, the phone up and it would be what, you know, it would be whatever. And I just wondered if that was kind of the oh. idea. There was some kind of bizarre it could communication device. But they never use it. So, no. I mean, it could be a joystick. I mean, well, I mean, in a, a joystick. Um, <laughs> I don't maybe think she used, that. No, maybe she uses it to steer the spaceship while she's still in bed. I mean, I don't know, but it's very, 
it's very odd. But yeah, because because of her um, reputation for her Swedish adult-oriented films, it seems quite interesting that they've just stuck that in there. Yeah, and then nobody blinks an eye. It's really funny. But it is. I, uh, I, it is interesting. Yes. Yeah, but the uh, but the design of that whole set is fabulous. I love it. Oh, I know it's wonderful. Now here's where I I do this thing where I, I hate to I hate to have to be able to say this, but I don't know that there is a good version of this film to see out there in the world anywhere. And no. I would there you don't know of one either, right? Nope. Uh, yeah, because I gotta say, this is a movie that I think because of especially this first section of the movie that it would do very well to be able to see a nice, sharp, clear version of everything because of the pop art design of this, uh, the spacecraft, this alien spacecraft, all of the, the, the costuming that goes into this, the weird robot, uh, the, we, we skipped over the moment where they, they take the head off of the robot and you can see the inner workings of its head. I do like the fact that you pointed out that something that I can never unsee is that it does look like, that uh, its teeth are someone's dentures. <laughs> yeah. I, think you, I think you're probably right there. But it's like, I want to see all this stuff in really high def now. I want to see a really sharp, clear picture yeah. of this thing. Oh, Regar- it would look great in Blu-ray, this film. I know. And, and, there, and even though I know that it's going to show off some of the uh, some of the uh, cheapness of the effects or some of the some of the failures of the effects work that you know you're just going to fall into with practical effects of this period from this period of time. I still, man, this is. I really wish there was a really good version of this out there. And I actually, I had hopes because this was primarily a uh, uh, a European production. I had hopes that maybe, surely, there was uh, because of the popularity of of the Perry Road novels out there in Germany. Surely, there was a German DVD out there yeah. or even a German Blu-ray of it. And I can't find anything that. It actually seems to be an uh, official release, uh, even a re- even a, a moderately crappy one, to be honest. Yeah, you'd think, yeah, with the German popularity that there would be, but I think part, I guess, one of the problems is that there are no real uh, there are no real names in this film that would be a selling factor to modern audiences. Yeah. Like, a company wouldn't want to pick this up and put it out when there's nobody in it that anyone has really heard of anymore. Um, there's very little kind of commercial potential, I think. That might be one of the reasons why it's never really found a, a legitimate release. I mean, the director is somebody who's not got this great cachet. The main cast, nobody's really heard of them anymore. Um, and to know, be blunt, the Perry Roden fans, the hardcore Perry Roden fans, don't like the movie either because of all the yeah. liberties it takes with the the the, uh, the initial sure. storyline in the first place. But it's the only Perry Roden film. I mean, there have been three thousand books and only one film, and this is it. Which I seems know, which makes so little sense. I mean, it's been going mm. on for sixty years, and there's been one f- attempt to film it. I would, I honestly thought when I started looking into this heavily that surely there was going to have been some high-budget television adaptation of a storyline for German television, and there's nothing. Yeah, it's really strange. So, yeah, I've got a feeling that this is a film that is going to just fall through the cracks because it's got, it's got nothing going for it commercially. You know, there's no Mario Bava connection or, or just anything that would give it that extra push towards a physical media release. The DVD... Which is, which is really sad. Yeah, 
the DVD that I've got, the print isn't bad, but every so often it cuts to um, what looks like a third generation VHS, where they must have somehow fitted it together with what they had and then the extra bits that were missing if they found on a VHS tape, I don't really know. So um, every so often it just goes really awful. And then it comes back to not being too bad again. I mean, I've, on my blog, I did put in a couple of stills that I took from the DVD and they're not too yeah. bad. Well, I have to say, but, from, from um, what I can tell, uh, it, like for instance, right here in the States, you can go on to like Amazon Prime or even onto YouTube and see the movie, but it's the cut down version of it. It's the version that's almost 10 minutes shorter. Uh, oh, okay. So it's like this, it's like this uh, 79 minute long cut instead of the 95 minute long cut. Oh, so that must be why the, the one I've got has got these extra bits cut in from a VHS tape. Those are all the bits that I think you're out. right. That, that would make sense to me. Okay. And the, uh, the yeah. problem you run into with a lot of this stuff is that if, if these are being put together from, you know, videotape sources from long ago, or even just, you know, somebody's ripping uh, a six, you know, somehow uh, making a copy of a 16 millimeter print that was used for television broadcast back in the seventies or eighties, what you've got, what you've got, is something that's not. I mean, it's just not a good representation of how this film should look. But at the same time, it does make me wonder if anybody has gone out there looking for uh, a chance to release this film. In the, you know, since I mean, we're, we're we're 20 years into the DVD revolution here. We're talking about digital releases of films now, and it occurs to me that surely in two decades, someone out there, especially in Europe, would have thought, "Hey, if we could get our hands on this." cheaply enough we could make you know we could make some money regardless of it not having mm. you know a big star or a director with you know a particular cult cachet or anything like that but it makes me wonder now i get i when i see something like this i get fearful that there's not a set of good elements out there anywhere that someone could draw on to do a good digital presentation of the film that's when i start to kind of get a little concerned mm. Well, it just makes you wonder. This it, it, it's probably there is probably um, a negative sitting in a vault somewhere in Italy, uh, or Spain, or Germany. <laughs> <laughs> like it could be somewhere, but the the number of different companies involved and the number of different legal departments, and obviously everyone has died, and it will have yeah. passed down, and companies companies will have gone bust, and elements will have been. You know, the chances are nobody knows who owns it anymore, and. You know that that happens to films all the time, like this. You know, obviously Italy at this point was churning out hundreds of films a year, yeah. and so they some of them just get lost, unfortunately. And I mean, who knows? It'd be good. It would be good though. It would be great but, if yeah, if somebody you know if somebody were to take the time and effort to find, you know to do some kind of hunt. But like I say, it, it may be cost prohibitive just because of the 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 possible profit on the on the far end after spending the money necessary to even get started might be might not be worth it at all which is truly sad but it's it would not be the first time i've heard such a story let's put it that way yeah uh another element of this film well well, first of all i'm let's talk about the director for a second uh this is the only Mm. film by this fellow that i've seen although there is another of his films as a director he seems to have been better known as a screenwriter, but there is another of his films as a director and screenwriter that uh, I've heard of but not yet seen. Uh, a spaghetti Western called The Relentless Four uh, that stars Adam West, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
No, I haven't seen that one. No, I've, I've heard about it, and I actually, uh, from what I hear, it's actually a pretty darn good little movie. Uh, you know, nothing, you know, nothing to, to shout home, you know, to, to, to write home about or be really extremely impressed by. But at the same time, it's uh, a spaghetti western starring, you know, 1960s Batman. So I'm kind of curious to see it. It, it, it makes yeah. me wonder if this particular if this particular director. Uh, was 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 some kind of go-to guy for strange films that nobody really has any interest in. I don't understand it. He made things like Son of the Red Corsair, Morgan the Pirates, mm. uh, Captain Phantom, yeah. which he was just he's just another one of these directors for hire who just worked on whatever they were told to work on. I mean, like Morgan the Pirates does Steve Reeves, Fresh Out of Hercules. Yeah, yeah, which. I I, um, I I might have actually seen that, but I can't remember. Yeah. So he he was just if you look at what he was doing in the sixties because he only worked. Well, he did a few in the fifties, but like once you get into the sixties, he's just doing the Peplum films, the westerns, yeah. and then this one, and then that's pretty much it. And um, and then he seems to have retired. So I don't know anything about him at all. Me either, but there are a couple of films in his uh, list of credits that uh, have, have, do have me curious because, well, I I know that you're one of those people like me who could sit and watch Eurospy movies all day, but I also can sit and watch these those Italian-made, uh, in, you know, period adventure films, whether they be Sword and Sandal or whether they be Pirates and and uh, you know Ne'er Do Wells on the Seven Seas. I just I have a I have a lot of a lot of time for those things because there's a there's a certain uh, well, let's put it this way. Some of my favorite movies from the golden age of Hollywood are pirate movies. And so yeah. even a even a knockoff version of those kind of things is something that will get my attention. So when I see that he's done, you know, the Son of the Red Corsair and it stars Lex Barker and Sylvia Lopez. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ready to push play on that and sit down and watch it. If you can find it. <laughs> yeah, that's the tricky part. Is these that's things. the problem with so many of these. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, I, I, can start, I can start the inevitable task, or I should, I should say also unenviable task, of sitting down and making a list of movies that are not readily available to see that I would love to get my hands on, and that list will keep going forever. Yeah, yeah I mean, I did a list like that on my Margaretti blog um, last year just going through his films as to what was available and what was unavailable and there's surprising there's a surprising number that you are you can't find anywhere you know whether he wrote some of them he just wrote or he worked on but some of the ones he directed as well because you know because they're not art yeah and he doesn't have the same status as somebody like Mario Bava they no one really cares yeah yeah <laughs> so they're just lost well, let's talk a bit about uh, something else that I really enjoyed in the movie. And uh, I, I've only seen a couple of people make reference to this when talking about this film, but I think it's a standout part of it, which is the score. Uh, it's, mm. it, it is very much a kind of Euro spy score, but at the times it also is obvious that the, the composer knew that he was making a, a science fiction movie as well, because there are certain, you know, certain instrumentation, shall we say, that would fall into the category of a, a space movie or a, an outer space film. I'm a big fan of this composer yeah, overall. Really uh, do you, uh, be, mainly because I know him because he did the scores for a few Nashi films and uh, also the Blind Dead movies as well in Spain. 
Oh right, okay. I hadn't realized that connection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did. Uh, he did the scores for the uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead, and therefore that score was reused for the three sequels. And then he did uh, Doctor Jekyll and the Werewolf. Uh, he did Pancho Villa. Uh, just uh, the Lorelai's grasp also for uh, Amando Diasorio. So uh, he did uh, Nashi's Curse of the Devil. And so when I heard this, this is, uh, I don't know that this is the earliest of his work that I've heard. Uh, it's pretty close, though, because I've not seen a lot of the stuff that he did uh, in the uh, early to mid-60s. But uh, this is pretty much in keeping with what I expect from, I, I should, I'm sorry, I should say his name. Uh, I'm sitting here praising the man. I should actually say his name out loud. It's uh, Anton, yeah. Gar- a- Anton Garcia Abril. And uh, I've had a mm-hmm. lot of time for his he, work over the years. Yeah, he did Werewolf Shadow. Yes, yes, he did. Which was uh, a film that we spoke about not that long ago. He is. A, he, That's very cool. I hadn't realized it was the same guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I say, he seems to have been able to do... Uh, pretty much any genre you ask him to do. I mean, he, he, he worked very, very consistently for decades. And uh, I, like I say, other than the fact that, his, you know, they, they reused his score for Tombs of the Blind Dead and all the sequels, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to, to find him, at least in what I've run across, uh, copying himself or redoing certain scores. But then again, at the same time, I look at, uh, let's just take 1970, for example, uh, he is credited for eight scores in 1970. Yeah, it's amazing. He uh, was really churning out, and he's still working now. Well, quite re- up until quite recently, he's still got credits. Which is crazy. I mean, so, it, I think that to a yeah. degree, whether he's still actively working or whether they're uh, they're reusing his music, they're you know they're like paying the the, the fees to yeah, reuse his true, music maybe. for different things, or if he's still actively working, that's pretty amazing. But yeah, it's a it's a fun it's a fun um, score, and again, it reminds me of Barbarella and Diabolic. It's got that kind of sound, especially the theme song and, and that kind of thing. Yes, yes, indeed. There's so much. Uh, there's a lot of differentiation in b- between the different tracks. I actually sat down. I you, you, the whole the whole uh, score you can listen to on Spotify. So I sat down and went through a bunch of it and was just really amazed because while watching the movie uh, a few days ago, I thought, wow, I'm really, I'm really enjoying the score. So I looked this, I looked it up and listened to it on Spotify and uh, yeah, man, it's quite good. It's quite good. It's, it's something I would listen to on its own, whether it was in the film or not. Uh, it's interesting. And he also, he did the score for that Mel Wells film um, with the killer plants, Island of the Doomed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Love that movie. And um, the, yeah, the various other titles that it was under. Um, and that they that had the same the director of that film was also a producer on this film so there's obviously ah, a connection yes. well, that, well that makes sense yeah. I guess yeah. back then all these people all knew each other and worked together because they were in and out of all these studios and it was such a busy time in uh, European popular film production that it's no surprise really that you see all these crossovers I suppose certainly very different from how these film industries run today <laughs> yeah definitely when you came to this film, you came to it because of the the Margariti connection. But I know that you're a fan of your spy films. What did, what did you expect walking? You know, when you sat down to watch this film, were you just watching it yeah. to see the special effects, or were you thinking this might be something of interest otherwise? Well, I didn't. Um, I mean, I would have watched this film anyway. When I bought it, I didn't even realize it was a Margariti connection. 
I just love this kind of stuff. So I would have watched this regardless of him being in it. That was a, a total bonus uh, for me when I realised. But um, And I was expecting it all to be on in space, I have to admit. So when halfway through, or perhaps even, maybe even be less than halfway through, they return to Earth and they go to Africa to find this doctor that can cure the um, leukaemia. Admittedly, I was slightly disappointed at first that we weren't just doing all this cool space stuff because I loved all the sets and the designs and everything. But once you get over that initial disappointment, I think it's still a lot of fun because it does feel like a Euro spy film, one of those kind of uh, 60s um, adventure films that were going on around that time. So I don't know. I don't think I really had any expectations as such. And once I got used to the idea that this was uh, going to be on Earth for quite a lot of it, um, I was fine with that. Uh, Because you still got, even though they go down to Earth, there's still sci-fi stuff going on. They've got this little box of tricks that lets them put a force field around themselves when they're having a fight with these guys. um, And they can make... They can make cars fly and all that kind of stuff. So there's still sci-fi stuff going on. And there's some great sequences when the spaceship um, melts a melts a mountain and turns it all into molten lava and um, when they're under attack from the local military. So there's still quite a lot of action once they get down to the to Earth. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think it, you know, I still enjoy that part of the film even though it doesn't look as visually exciting as when they're on the spaceship. I agree. I think that it stands up as a pretty decent little Eurospy film. Now, here's where I get curious about this, because there are uh, Eurospy fanatics, people who just love the genre to death, and I now wonder uh, what the general general consensus opinion is of this as part of the Eurospy genre. And uh, I wonder, you know, how essentially how it rates on the, the Eurospy fan scale. Because for me, and I'm obviously for you as well, it's it's really neat to see these two genres kind of combined in a pretty interesting way. And I, I like how the the two you you could say it's kind of a hinge point in the movie where you know it goes from really being something that's taking place in the science fiction genre and then something that really could just be a kind of out there Eurospy movie because I mean we've all seen yeah. those Eurospy movies where the gadgets they're using they're you know they're trying to outdo the James Bond stuff so the gadgets get really crazy so it could just be a, a slightly crazier end of the spectrum Eurospy film in the second half yeah because obviously this is but this has got a really good excuse for having sci-fi gadgets that do things that even James Bond films couldn't do. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but and I, I mean, I wonder how well this film is known uh, by Euros by fans because, for all all its appearances, it looks like a sci-fi film. So there's not much of a clue in the marketing or or anything that it's actually half Euros by. It's only when you watch it that you sort of discover that. So um, makes me wonder how well it's known anyway. Well, I can just go by you know what I talked talked about earlier, which is that when I first watched this, uh, my you know I knew that it was a science fiction movie. So when it segued into the to the Earth based stuff, and it's very much more of a you know a, a kind of James Bond villain trying to get the MacGuffin away from our main characters with the aliens is kind of uh, I don't know 
interesting color for the background of things. It became mm-hmm. less interesting to me back then, but now I, like I say, now I consider it just a plus to have the two um, the two together. A kind of a genre mashup that uh, is very much pleasing to me outside of having any uh, expectations for what it was actually going to be. So, yeah, on the uh, the review that it got in Variety when it was released in the U.S. in 1969. They said that uh, though sheer nonsense, it's enjoyable. And um, they said the dubbing is only fair, the special effects crude, the colour uneven, but the very audaciousness of the admixture keeps the attention. Every plot twist adds to the enjoyableness. And I think that's really true, that because it is really audacious in the way that it's mixing these things together. And so there's never really a dull moment. It keeps your attention all the way through. I would agree. That's the thing that I noticed about it this time through. I was not, you know, I was not tempted to uh, pull up my phone. I was not tempted to stop the film and to come back to it later on. It was, uh, it was thoroughly enjoyable. And like I say, I was, I was watching the full length cut of the movie, and uh, just really, my my only complaint the entire time watching it was, I wish we had a really much better looking version of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's got everything that you want in one one package. <laughs> well, how, how was it you put it? Uh, you, you said uh, at the end of your at the end of your blog post, you said I had a great time watching Mission Stardust. It has everything you want from a '60s Euro, Euro spy fi film: uh, rockets and spaceships, form hugging spacesuits, pop art design, laser guns, robots, tanks, punch ups, and anti gravity weapons. What's not to like? And I gotta agree with you. Yeah. What is there not to like about this thing? Yeah, I st- I still stand by that a hundred percent. It's uh, and there. There is a copy of there is a copy of this on YouTube, like we said, so people can check it out quite easily. Yeah, yeah. And if if you go in with the not with the expectations of a science fiction film, but as a, of a genre mashup, I think you'll have a really good time with it. It's it's surprisingly fun, and it is a real joy to to just wallow in those old style miniature special effects, which is something that I get just such a kick out of. The uh, I just recently revisited. Uh, one of the Gamma One films to cover it over on uh, Monster Kid Radio with Derek Cook, and uh, it was just—it's just so much fun to be able to 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 watch those to, to kind of wallow in the '60s miniature special effects stuff. Uh, and with, of course, in Margarita's films like that, they're incredibly colorful as well. And of course, for those films, we have better prints of them. But the uh, oh, by, by the way, Adrian, uh, I've started a I've started a push to try to get. Uh, Warner Archives over here who have the rights to three of the Gamma One films. I've started this push to try to get them to release those films on uh, Blu-ray. They've released them on DVD, but I'm trying to get them to uh, consider putting them out on Blu-ray. And uh, also, I'm going to try... What what I'm trying to do is trying to get them to add a little... They rarely put extras on anything that they do, but uh, I think it would be great if we could get you and maybe Derek to sit down and do a commentary track on some of those Gamma (laughs) 1 films, because I can't think of anybody better suited than you, my friend. Well, thank you. I would happily do that. I mean, it's a shame, isn't it, that they've only got three and not the fourth film. I don't understand how that could have happened but if they had all four then obviously a box set would be uh, a no-brainer but even if we just get the three of them that would be really cool because those are all good fun although um like the snow devils is potentially a bit disappointing if you're expecting another film in space (laughs) that's true (laughs) because it's mostly uh up a mountain but uh but yeah no those are great and yeah wild wild planet is it really does live up to its name 
And that, and that, if they were only gonna like spring to pay for you to do a commentary track on one of them, Wild Wild Planet would be it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that movie's insane. Well, hey, if you want to add that to your campaign, I'm fine with that. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just trying to get people to uh, write in, write in, and uh, let them know that there's an audience out here that wants those films on Blu-ray, and that uh, yeah. I know a guy who lives in England who'd be more than glad to provide a commentary track. So. <laughs> And my rates are very negotiable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about Mission Stardust before we wrap this thing up? No, just that I really hope people uh, do are curious enough to go and find a copy and watch it because it is really good fun. And uh, I don't think there's another film quite like this one. There are, you know, there are other films that have bits that are like like this, but this film has got you know, combines elements from so many different popular European films of this time that it's a great way to really get a good um, you know Euro cinema kick all in ninety minutes. I agree. I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed revisiting this movie. It's it's a real joy to go back and to discover that a movie that you'd kind of poo pooed or uh, dismissed completely being something that uh, really surprises you that that actually rears it rears up its head and tells you just how high quality it actually is good well thank you for uh, for accepting my invitation to uh, for us to have a chat about this one I, I was more than happy to this is a movie that uh, I think uh, if we can get more people to watch it I think we'll have some people who uh, who will be unhappy with us but the, we'll actually have some people who are pleased that we we pointed them toward this movie as well I think it's worth checking out and it's mm. uh, yeah I, I, you're, you may be right I don't know that we're gonna get a chance to see this in uh, a decent print anytime soon but uh, that just means that it's really easy to see out there on YouTube and elsewhere yeah yeah definitely. Yeah, do uh, do go and check it out. And then if you've never seen any of the Gamma 1 films, watch those too, because Margaretti, I think he probably just about finished making those when he worked on this one, which is probably why he got the job. Um, and so you can see him, him honing his craft uh, and very similar sort of style of space miniatures, um, which you get in this film. Well, Adrian, before I let you go, uh, what uh, are there? What what have you been working on? What have you been working on lately? What uh, kind of projects do you have uh, on the boil that you can tell us about that uh, might be coming out sometime soon? Uh, good question. Uh, well, I've still got to try and finish my last blog entry on um, the last episode of Your uh, Il Mondo de Your because I've only got up to episode three so far, but. Um, I've just written an article for Screen Magazine about Italian cannibal films. Ah, yes. Which is which is to coincide with the release of Cannibal Apocalypse on Blu-ray in America. Um, and I'm now working on uh, a booklet essay for an upcoming Blu-ray release of Baby Love here in the UK, which is a quite controversial 60s um, movie starring a very young Linda Hayden. Oh really? Okay, yeah, I I've heard the title. I've never seen the movie. Yeah, uh, uh, it's uh, yeah, I, it, it's very much of its time. <laughs> I think it's fair <laughs> to say, but it's really interesting. So uh, yeah, I'm writing about that. And um, what else am I doing? Well, I'm I've got a longer project on the go at the moment with the Cult Film Club. So people can find my Facebook 
page, Cult Film Club. Uh, I think if you just go to facebook.com slash the cult film club UK, or if you just search for the cult film club, then you should find it. We just hit a thousand followers on our page over this weekend. Cool. Which is really cool. So I was doing local screenings once a month in a, in a cinema. Uh, um, and then obviously that all got cancelled. I had, I had Robocop all lined up. We were going to be screening the new 4K restoration of Robocop. And oh, then that really? Got yeah, cool. Yeah, well, we were going to, and it got cancelled two days before, obviously, when everything started to shut down. Yeah. Um, so what I'm doing now is I'm keeping the Cult Film Club going online. So I, held a, I did a quiz live from my house. Uh, as a Facebook Live video two two weeks ago. That was chaotic fun. Um, <laughs> I had like hundreds of people playing along. It was bizarre. Um, and this week, so this is probably too late for when the podcast goes out, but uh, this coming week I'm doing a Netflix party where we're going to watch Heavy Metal together. Cool. Um, but I'm, pl- I'm trying to do events on there at least every two weeks. So if people are interested, they can have a look, like the page, and I'm going to have another quiz coming up, or we'll be doing a tweet along. Because um, I did do I did a tweet along of Robocop a month ago, but I'm going to do other things like that, more Netflix parties, watch parties. I'm just getting it. I'm just exploring the options on Twitch as well. So I might do a live thing on Twitch. I don't really know exactly how that's going to go. But anyway, so that's another project that I'm trying to keep going until we can eventually get back to going to cinemas again. So, uh, um, yes. yeah, if people want to look up the Cult Film Club, then, uh, yeah, that's that's keeping me busy at the moment as well. Excellent. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much for being on the show again. Well, you know, I'm sure I probably said this last time, but because I listen to your podcast all the time, if I was just listening to your X the Unknown episode today, uh, while I was standing in a very long queue outside a shop. Um, so when I'm on here with you, it's like the podcast has just suddenly become interactive. It's great uh, because I, I listen to it all the time and I sometimes send you voicemails. Yeah. And this way I, I get to actually be in the episode. It's really fun. So thank you very much. Uh, you you bring plenty to this show and I cannot thank you enough, man. You, you're, you're great and it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Well, hey, anytime. All right, man. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts. Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff Victoria Price and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio.
I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? you once again for listening to the show uh adrian comes up with some interesting ideas for podcasts and i'm always glad to have him here uh coming up soon several episodes one right after the other that couldn't be more different from one another if i had tried it this way i've got a podcast coming up on a silent movie for the first time uh covering a silent movie because my friend John Hudson, who's normally covering Antonio Margariti films with me, wanted a little break from the Margariti, and so we're doing that. So hang on for that pretty soon. Also, Mark Maddox is returning for another Hammer film after X the Unknown. We're covering The Mummy's Shroud here uh, probably in the next week or two. So hang on for that as well. And then, of course, uh, later on this month, Troy will be back to return to the 1940s Universal Horror Films, and we're going to take a look at the Lionel Atwill film The Mad Doctor of Market Street. So, uh, like I say, very different kinds of movies coming up. Uh, Hammer, Universal, uh, a silent movie, and uh, honestly, we've got some very interesting and strange things on the boil as well, as in- including a return to uh, the Eurotrash end of things in an unexpected 
request from a new visitor to the podcast. So, thank you for listening once again. Remember, if you want to uh, write into the show, give me your thoughts and your comments. The email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'll be glad to hear from you. And uh, there's also a Facebook page if you're still like me, trapped in the Facebook hell that we all exist within. And I will uh, talk to you again very soon. Thanks for listening.
song that I, 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 that is trash, that is dirt, that is surf, what possessed you to write such a disgusting, degeneratized song as that? And I'm complimenting you by considering it a song.